0: Drama on One.
1: Sundays at 8pm. rte.ie forward slash drama on one.
2: Drama on One.
3: Now on RTE Radio 1, Drama on One, and another chance to hear a special programme of voices from the archive. In 2016, award-winning sound designer Jimmy Edie and DJ and music pioneer Donald Anine teamed up with Drama on One to create a soundscape for the centenary of the Easter Rising. The piece begins by reimagining the Morse Code broadcast made by the Rebels a century ago, before moving on to key moments in the nation's wireless history since then. You'll also hear the voice of Pat Herbert, who explains how that Rebel broadcast took place. For the next three quarters of an hour or so, this is 100, by Donald Deneen and Jimmy Eady.
2: In the endless silent darkness above us. The same spacious sky then as now. Only one without noise. Wind blown and blasted and buffeted, but wireless. No dots, no dashes, no signs. In light or sound. Wavelengths and airwaves in waiting. Words never spoken. Messages unsent. Light and sound. Uncaptured. Untrammeled, free-floating and falling, falling, falling. Lost in space, carrying no information, bound for no destination. And on the ground, gestures, actions, mouths, hands, fingers, fists. Vellum, feather, paper, ink. Rifles, powder, fire. Signals made of smoke. Senders and receivers, the signs of the times, times are changing, magnetic stirrings, murmurs made of flashing sheets of light, Morse code, matters of the heart, more pressing talk, revolutions, private and personal, epiphanies, in the valley of the roof, the beginning of the end, the beginning again dot, 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 dash, dash, again, again.
4: Irish Republic declared in Dublin today, Irish troops have captured the city and are in full possession enemy cannot move in city, the whole country rising.
1: This final broadcast of Easter week memories is made by two members of the GPO garrison. I myself was with a section of the Rathfarnham company, which was rushed to the roof sometime after our arrival. And there we remained until late on Wednesday night, sleepless and ever on the alert. One fascinating sight during our watch was the wireless as it flashed out signals at night over the DBC building across the road. We learned later that the flashing sheet of light as it seemed to us was broadcasting the proclamation of the Republic to the world. And later indeed I saw an American paper dated for the Tuesday or Wednesday of Easter week with that news well splashed in an enormous heading on its front page.
4: Well, the whole idea was to get the message across to, to to America, and particularly to John Devoy, who was head of Clanagail, and who had raised a lot of funds for the rising, to get the message across to America, before the British could have done so. So what was intended was to cut the wires going down to the transatlantic station in Valentia Island, cut the wires in Dublin and didn't have their own method of communication by wireless from Sackville Street in Dublin down to Canada Station in Cairns A
5: little while after the GPO was taken and the people cleared out and the windows barricaded, uh, Joe Plunkett came into the hall and he spoke to me and he said, that he wanted me to take possession of the wireless school over Rice's jewellery shop and to take six men and go over there and take possession of the wireless school and put the apparatus which was there into working order. So I went over with six men that were detailed to me and also a, a wireless operator named Burke who was with me and we went across our Street into Rice's, and at the top floor we took possession of the wireless, the, the wireless apparatus, which consisted of a one and a half kilowatt ship's wireless set. The room in was sealed up by the military since the beginning of the war, and the various components of the apparatus were all disconnected. Also, we found when we went up on the roof that the aerial had been taken down, although the poles were left in the valley of the roof and there were clamps on the wall and on the chimney where the poles had been fixed. So our first work was to get the aerial erected. We got um, a wire to form an aerial, we made an aerial and we commenced pushing the poles up into the position uh, using the six men that had been sent over.
1: And here now is Liam Daly, who helped to erect the wireless aerial over the DBC, with his story and some other memories, too.
6: About 3.30 a.m. on Tuesday, I was awakened from a heavy sleep after my labours on the iron door and ordered to the roof by Captain Breen to erect the aerial and wireless poles. The clamps for fixing the poles were in position, still, as the wireless school had been in operation until the war and was only closed temporarily. Dawn was breaking as I climbed a narrow parapet to reach these clamps, and some of our lads were behind me in the valley of the roof. The clamp was fastened by a butterfly nut, slightly rusty. This nut had to be turned by a pair of pliers, and while I was carrying out this job, I heard stones or pebbles striking the wall close to me. I shouted to the lads in the Valley of the Roof to stop firing stones at me. Then I saw a piece of brick from the edge of the wall fly out into O'Connell Street and realised that the stones I had heard were really bullets and that I was under fire. Quickly, I finished the job and jumped off the parapet into the Valley of the Roof. I'm not ashamed to say that I slumped into a faint when I got down. This was the first time I was under fire with the knowledge that I was the target and the reaction was too great for me. Coming under fire later had no effect on me
5: emotionally, even when I was wounded. Uh, British troops had come along then and taken up positions and they were Uh, able to snipe at our positions so we had to we had to, to leave over the work as it was until it was dark that night. So after dark we finished the erection of the poles and put up the aerial and in the meantime my friend Burke who was a professional wireless operator had been working very hard inside in completing the connections of the various bits of apparatus The apparatus was fed from the Dublin Corporation mains and we were very glad to find that the electricity supply was still maintained, otherwise we couldn't have used the apparatus at all. So, must have been on Tuesday morning, we were ready to use the uh, transmitting set, but we hadn't been able to get the receiving set working at all for some reason or another. It was, it had suffered from being out of use since the beginning of the war then we got messages were sent over to us from James Connolly in the GPO and on Tuesday night we started transmitting and then we transmitted further messages on Wednesday in the meantime the Helga came up the Liffey and dropped shells on the house and on our, on our building and we had to evacuate the position go back to the GPO on Thursday.
4: But the idea was to get the message across to America before the British could have done so. So what was intended was to cut the wires going down to the transatlantic station in Valentia Island. Cut the wires in Dublin and then have their own method of communication by wireless from Sackville Street in Dublin down to Canada station in Carstervine. But as we explained, that never happened. It all went wrong. Con Keating was one of the chief people with Joseph Plunkett. He was a ship's radio uh, officer from Kerry. And he was out in Larkfield House with them and helped build this radio and whatever. What they had intended to do, and did in fact do, was to send Con Keating and five more people down to break into the station in in Caharsayveen on the Good Friday before the the rising. So they went down by train as far as Limerick and they hired two taxis, or there was two taxis waiting for them in Limerick to take them to Caharsayveen. Now on the road down, as you can imagine, there there was no electricity, no lighting or whatever, everywhere was in darkness. So they lost contact with the first car, and Con Keating being the man with all the the know-how, he was in the second car anyway. So they got out to Astaway and Kerry, and uh, going over the bridge anyway in Kilorglan, they missed the road and went off and drove into the sea, off the Balikasan Pier, and uh, three of them and the taxi driver went into the river. Now the taxi driver got out and, and swam to safety, but the others got lost. So what started out as a great adventure, if you like, ended in disaster. It all ended because of an accident. So the other three fellows in the car in front, they waited and waited and waited at Car Savine and there was no sign of them, so they headed back to Dublin. So the thing come unstuck from the very beginning, from the first day. So we get back to Dublin. What they didn't have was a receiving aerial. They only had a, an output aerial, if you like, or a, a transmitting aerial. And uh, of course, at this stage, Joseph Plunkett was too ill to give any more instructions. So James Connolly then took over and it was he that sent the the message. uh, Secretary Winnie Carney typed it out and sent the message to them of what was to be said over the airways, which Fergus Kelly duly took on himself to start transmitting over the airways. Now, unknown to them, and I suppose unknown to anybody else. They had nowhere to transmit to, because the station in in Caharsayveen was all locked up. So what happened, rather than a transmission, it became a broadcast. And not alone did it become a broadcast, but it became the first broadcast in Ireland. It went out over the airways, were known to them. They didn't realise they were broadcasting until afterwards. It was picked up apparently by by two stations in Bulgaria. A non-military station in Germany picked it up. A German tramp steamer out in the North Atlantic in the war picked it up. The British ship Adventure out at Dunleary, which was after coming up from Cork picked it up, and also an amateur enthusiast in Wales who got uh, locked up for his troubles because he reported this to the police in Wales, and when he shouldn't be operating because of the war, they, they, they shouldn't be operating, so he got, he got put, put in jail because of this. Irish Republic declared in Dublin today, Irish troops have captured the city and are in full possession, enemy cannot move in city, the whole country rising.
2: years later, directly across the road, a new aerial is hoisted by the flag. The dots and dashes of flashing sheets of light mutate to words, notes and all manner of carefully considered and beautiful noise. 2RN is born.
7: He's, he's actually in, started on his journey across the wire.
6: The Irish Times for January the 2nd, 1926 contained a long article dealing with what it described as the official beginning of the Irish Free State Broadcasting Service. Preliminary
8: tests, the Times said, had been successful, and... It was in a confident spirit that all concerned in the transmission of the first regular programme assured each other, about half past seven, that everything was perfectly in order.
7: At a quarter to eight, the call sign 2RN and tuning note having been given from the transmitter, Dr Douglas Hyde stood there beside the station director facing the microphone into which he spoke his opening address. This he began in English, but the main part was in Irish Gaelic, which has come to its present degree of use through his reviving efforts.
6: Let's look back almost 40 years and see what was expected of us. On December the 30th, 1925, the Irish Independent wrote...
0: The announcement that the Dublin wireless station will broadcast its first programme on New Year's night will be received with pleasure throughout the country. The innovation should prove to be especially welcome to those who dwell in rural parts, where dullness of life too often makes for discontent and sets youth along pleasure paths that lead to sin and crime. Whether we've had much
6: success as preventers of crime, it's hard to be sure, but I think it may fairly be claimed that we've gone a considerable way towards fulfilling the second part of the independence prediction.
0: Henceforth, the possessor of a receiving set will have the pleasure of knowing that he can listen into to a programme chosen not to suit the tastes and needs of neighbouring nations, but to suit the Irish people.
2: The sound of a country was about to be captured at source. A mobile recording unit set forth. Microphones were in the field. Magnetic tape, reels, and wheels in motion. Since 1947 in particular, no
0: area is any longer outside the scope of broadcasting. Since Sean McRaerman, Seamus Ennis, and Joe Lacey made their first recordings of Peg Sayers and of Kerry Folk singers in that year, The music, songs, and speech of every part of the country, and of the Goeltacht in particular, have been made available to Radio Air and listeners.
9: Uh, Pardon me for butting in like this. I'm a stranger here, and I heard there was a dance on, I haven't been invited or anything else. Hello, I thought my I'd look in and see what was going on.
0: Hello, my honest neighbor you You're welcome into any old farmstead in Tipperary at any the night. Thank you Ma- very much. I happen to be the proprietor of this house. Uh, my name is Patsy Fagan from Balnamona. Any harm that's your name, sir? My name is Seamus Ennis. How do Pleased to meet the Seamus Ennis. You're quite welcome into the old-fashioned dance. What, thank what? you, thank you very much. Uh, what's yeah. the name of God is that whole thing you have there in your hand? The name of God? Goodbye. It's, it's a microphone. A microphone? Yes. Oh Audio. Well, we'll forget about that. Yes. I just said is. I'd look in and see what's going on, and I want you to tell me something about your fashion dance. Well, no seamus. I did it come into us? I will tell you. How did you I prepare was... for it, Sam? Well, no. I started the seed last spring and got it in tea that. <laughs> I had to wait for the I had to wait for the summer the spring and the summer to come, and thanks be the God things did turn out well. But unfortunately, Jack Commons, the man that found the fashion machine. He promised me to come here on that Thursday. I had plenty of meat and stuff in the house, and the devil didn't turn up until this morning. I met him today, all right. (laughs) Meet him today, Seamus.
10: When we started mobile recording, we worked hard, and often felt like dropping in our tracks at the close of our day. The close of our day, of course, could just as well be 2 a.m. or 5 p.m., We carried some barely portable recording gear in the back of an old 14.9 Ford car, my property. We had no van then. For each recording session we had to find ourselves a room for the machine and a room for the artists. When we think back on the batteries, amplifier, recorder and all the other paraphernalia we carried in and out of houses, to and from the car, our most vivid recollection is one of their tremendous weight. The very first record we made on this, our first trip, tells its own story. What's
9: this, Joe? I don't know. What it is. There's something wrong?
11: Uh, customs examination. What kind is this?
9: Customs examination? Yes.
11: You
9: know this is a custom station? It is, yes. Oh, I'm on the wrong road, sir. I... I should be going to Manor Hamilton and now.
8: where'd you come from?
9: I came from Dora and Balnegledoch just now.
8: And so you're not going to old
9: now? I wanted to get to Manor Hampton. But
8: this is been a and road.
9: I see. Well, if I turn about now... If you turn right in the village, you get to
10: Manorhampton. What mm-hmm. have you in the car, by the way?
9: I have some recording gear property of Radio Air, and I'm on a recording tour at the moment. Have you... a, a
11: reservation book for the car?
9: I have, yes. Yeah. Well,
11: Now, I there anything else that will prove who exactly
9: you are? Well, my engineer here has an identity card, a pass card. Engineer yeah. of the GPO-W. Oh, right. There I you are. Uh-huh, yeah. Thank you.
8: Well, do well, you want to get to Manhampton?
9: Yes, I suppose we can turn well, about- We're been about
8: a quarter of a mile of the border
9: now. I see. Well, I took around the turn somewhere. If i carry on to the right of the village, I'll go straight on. Does that yes. road lead me to Manorhampton? Yes, straight to Manorhampton. Thank you very much. Well,
8: good night, sir. Good night, sir. It is while we were recording for the programme called The Electrification of an Irish Village. Near Kerr trees were being filled so that the wires might cross fields, and I decided to make a recording of this. An undercut was made to direct the fall of the tree, and then sawing and hammering went ahead, like this. It was a windy day, and fortunately, I happened to notice that the tree that was going to fall in a direction other than that intended. In fact, it was going to fall on top of me. When the first groans began, I deserted my post. Microphone in hand, I ran for my life as that tree toppled. And on the end of this recording, you'll hear my comment to the engineer at the other end of the line, as this giant came crashing down. And that was nearly on top of me. And so it was. All that Jimmy Mann, the engineer, said was that if the tree had crushed me to the ground, he'd have recorded my last will and testament, if there'd been any life left in me. In
2: 1951, Bess Cronin, was the latest in a long line from a family of singers that had been extending the golden thread through the rich tapestry of music and song in kool Seamus Ennis brought Alan Lomax to her door and the machines they carried across the threshold turned the soundings of a soft and sweet cork evening into a harvest for the world to feast on at any time in the future. After being blown away and by it for so long, we finally caught the wind.
12: daddy, dance dance for daddy, my child. I'll buy my child a saucepan and I'll buy my child a spoon. I'll buy my child a writing glass and he will go to school. Dance for her daddy, oh, dance for her mammy, oh, dance for her daddy, oh, child. Well, that, that reminded me of something else now, too, and it was like this. Cook and ending, endy, cook and endy, cook and endy, oh, cook and ending, endy, cook and endy, oh, the singing and throw him over over, draw him over, say, throw him over over, he'll be here today. And throw him over over, throw him over, say, throw him over over, he'll be here today. He didn't dance, dance and he didn't dance today, he didn't dance, dance, and over yesterday. He didn't dance, dance and he didn't dance today, he didn't dance, did dance, did dance, dance, and over yesterday. Draw him <laughs> up, up, throw him up, hey, throw him up, up, Nil he'll be here Draw him up, up, throw him up, hey, throw him up, open, he'll be here when boy. nandi, and ending, endy, nandi, and endy, cook and endy, cook and endy, cook and endy, cook It is very hard to explain what it means, you know. In fact, it, there isn't much meaning You it but just some little thing like Andy, or oh, you couldn't make a tale of that because it didn't it didn't mean anything but just to put it in like for a finish in it or
11: something <laughs> She <laughs> who we are a no lava her, it ended you her shells. Oh, so her no come the dig, her no far regig, no Maharaja Sashi O Vajjan Gudi O
5: and sitting here in the sun, isn't it? I don't know whether that's enough for your voice test or not, but do you want me to go on a bit longer?
9: Am
10: I speaking loud
9: enough? It's quite surprising.
10: We both seem to be very far away from the microphone because the little needle here is not really jigging about in the higher region that's keeping down the South Pole somehow. With me I have...
7: um... Patrick Kelly.
10: And what significance has this week for you, Patrick?
13: I think it's uh, very good. I think it's a great uh, time for the Irish,
10: And you're wearing two medals here. Yes. Why is
13: that? Uh, well, my father was fighting in ni- uh, 1916. Uh, he was fighting in the GPO, uh, he is dead now. And uh, I'm wearing the medals for him. Are you very proud? Yes.
10: And what do you think you've learned uh, in this past week?
13: Well, I think I've learned a lot about uh, how the men fought, the spirit that they had.
10: Now, do they have your name? Joseph Walsh. And what does uh, 1916 mean to you,
14: Joseph? Well, it means that it led to our freedom at the end, I suppose. But it doesn't mean a terrible lot to me as a whole, really.
10: Does it mean more to you now than it did last Sunday? Yes,
14: I think it does. Now, see, I'm part of the celebrations now, you see. Last time, I had nothing to do at all. I would just sit down and look at them.
10: What impression have they made on you during the week?
14: Well, I think it's been a very good impression. It was quite good now. I thought the ceremonies were very good. It's pretty though the rain had to come down on top of them all the time. But otherwise, it was quite good.
10: What men of Easter week impressed you
14: most? Impressed me most? I thought I think Connolly was quite good, mind you. I mean, he was wounded and all that. And then he turned up in the end, and still he directed them all all the way to the end. So that was he was the most. On Monday night, we camped out in Stevens Green, but during the night, British troops had gained possession of the Shelburne Hotel, and at four o'clock in the morning, they started machine gun fire on us. This made it impossible for us to stay in the Green, so it was decided to take possession of the College of Surgeons. We lost one of our boys, James Fox, who was killed before we left the Green. I was then sent to bring in 16 men who were guarding Meeson Street Bridge, who would otherwise have been cut off from us. They all arrived safely at the College of Surgeons. I had ridden ahead to report to Commandant Mallin and as he stood listening to me, a bullet whizzed through his hat. He took off his hat, looked at it without comment, and put it on again. On Wednesday, we spent most of our time sniping at the British from the roof of the College of Surgeons. And on Wednesday night, Commandant Mallin sent two squads to cut off some British had planted a machine gun on the roof of University Church. I was in charge of one squad of four men. When we reached the building at the foot of Harcourt Street which was to be set on fire, Council Partridge burst the lock of the door with his rifle butt. The rifle went off and the flash revealed our position to the enemy who were in the Sinn Féin bank opposite. I turned to call the men to come on, heard a volley and fell wounded. I was carried out to the street and there lay Fred Ryan, a lad of 17, he was dead. I was carried back to the College of Surgeons and had my wounds attended to, and although so badly wounded, I had to laugh when the men and women around me took a cough which I was trying to suppress as the death rattle. I remained in the College of Surgeons till the surrender when I was sent to St. Vincent's Hospital. All reports that came to me there were of death and prison sentences. Day after day the executions went on. Even James Connolly, badly wounded, was placed in a chair and shot.
13: I got a fright I tell the truth when a man was taken off the roof he was there uh, they had an awful job trying to get him down off the roof because every time anyone put their head up you see they were fired on the Shelburne Hotel you see had full aim anyway uh, four men took him out four men got him down through a skylight and um, when I seen the sight of him he had 13 bullet wounds in him. The machine that gun played on him every time and sent him back. Every time he put his head up, do you see, he was hit back. Anyway, um, there was a few then to help me, do you see. And uh, there was three, three from coming on with me. Uh, Mrs Nora Daly and Bridget Martha and mm. uh, Mae Moore. Them three were there. But anyway, when he was taken down, and when they got him down, and I've seen him, me knees knocked, <laughs> me knees shook. And I remember Kathleen Searle said to me afterwards, just a short time afterwards, she was helping, Rosie, how did you manage it? When Dr. Lynn was training us, she told us, you might have an occasion to... Uh, To say a prayer for for uh, courage, the other girls I just gave them the the scissors I had in the bag in the the parcel, and uh, four scissors out I gave around to them and get them uh, to get the clothes off as much as they could from the top. Just all this side, the left side, and uh, the back here, the back, and his eye and his ear. But he, he lived for six and a half years after.
15: We marched to attack Dublin Castle and it was part of Connolly's plan too that the first shot should be fired at Dublin Castle because he said the effect of that if it was heard through the country that Dublin Castle had been attacked and taken by the rebels that the whole of Ireland would lift its heart up and and come and join us full of hope but we went up uh, up the quays and up Westmoreland Street (coughs) And up through Dame Street and until we come to the castle gate. And then Connolly said, Get in, get in. But the sentry at the gate, quick as lightning, banged the gate in our faces. He was too quick for us. Um, there was a policeman shot dead there, yeah. I think by Connolly. Um, but then he said, Get in, get in, get into the city hall. So we scrambled over the gate, which was locked, was bank holiday, you see and got in without any trouble into the City Hall. Uh, John Connolly had probably arranged that because he was a clerk in the City Hall at the time, working, and he knew the lie of the place, because City Hall is practically part of the castle. We went up into the City Hall and got up on the roof. I asked, uh, where, where the, there was a kitchen, we found there was a kitchen upstairs and the girls at once started to get ready to make food ready for the men. But then, About one o'clock we were on the roof <coughs> several men and I and some girls and uh, uh, John Connolly and he was struck, bullet, there was firing you see from the castle and from the houses the roof of the houses opposite, where some of our men had gone up into Dame Street, over the tailors opposite, um, opposite the castle gate. And the rooftops, there was constant counter-firing. And uh, I woke up to the fact that there was firing coming close, fairly close to me. And I said to myself, I'd better not be standing here be a cock shot. So I moved into Shelter. But John Connolly was struck then. And by that time, Dr. Lynn had arrived downstairs, so we sent down for her and she came up and she said, I'm afraid he's going. So he lasted a couple of minutes. I said a prayer into his ear as he went and he was, he was dead.
10: How long were you working in the post office before Easter
16: 1916? About two months before. Two months? About two months, oh, yeah. previously, yeah. yeah. And
8: what happened? Uh, well, actually... You, 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 now, it was a bank holiday.
16: Yes. Well, yeah. I was a probationer in the GPO and I was on the, um, in the instrument room, I was on the top floor. And um, I was listed for duty, need to duty in the GPO on that particular day, Easter Sunday. Mm. And um, I um, arrived on my bicycle, <laughs> which I had to leave down in the cellar, and... Uh, um, Around about 12 o'clock, there was a great commotion downstairs, the breaking of windows and screaming and roaring. And um, I... uh, Around about 10 or 15 minutes later, uh, the door burst open and a number of volunteers rushed in, dressed in uniform, with rifles and revolvers. And um, we were told to leave the room immediately. But um, I was anxious about my bicycle. So I just went up to whoever I thought was in charge. Actually, I thought it was the O'Reilly, and asked him, could I possibly go downstairs to get my bicycle? And he said no, he'd advise me to get out as soon as possible. So that's what I did. You got out? I got out. Without, without your without bike? Without my bike, yes. <laughs>
5: and the O'Reilly
16: put you
9: out without the bike?
16: Well, I don't know whether it was... There was some, there was some discussion yeah. about whether it was... Did your... you ever get the bike
10: back, as a matter well, of Well,
16: no, interest. I got compensation, actually. Did you? From, yes. Very from whom? I think the department gave to me.
10: Oh, I see. The they refunded. So you lost your bike in I the fight for
7: bike. Irish freedom. <laughs> I was at home for the rising. I was, saw them turning people out of Stephen's Green. Looking, at, I looked out the window and saw gates being closed in the, about midday, and a beautiful, fine morning and people being turned out and I called my mother and we couldn't make out what was happening, especially as the men had guns on their backs and they were locking the gates of the green and then they they started uh, stopping cars, any cars that went along cabs, so everything was horse drawn then practically and uh, they made the men take their horses away and they put up barricades of the carts cabs at the end of each end of the green then the the volunteers took over a pub at the corner of cuff street called the winter gardens and uh, there was a lot of shooting from there i don't know where they were shooting to or from but there were bursts of firing and the people from cuff street which was a slum in those days that used to come out and stand at the corner and watch they didn't know what was happening either nobody knew what was happening
10: What uh, has this week meant to you, Catherine?
17: Well, it's meant an awful lot because I've learned much more about 1916 than I knew before. Like, I've done the course in history, but it was never very alive. But The ceremonies have brought it back, and it's. The, I I went to the um, the display in the museum, and um, I th- I found that very helpful because uh, they had it, it gave a personal touch to the whole um, uh, commemoration. And, um, I don't know, the whole thing is very much more alive to me than before. What
10: part do you think, what significance had the women in 1916?
17: Oh, I, do, I think that's about the best part of 1916, that the women did actually have a part. Because in other revolutions and uh, risings throughout different countries and in Europe, we never hear very much about the women. But in Ireland, at least credit is given to them as having helped and having played a, a very significant part in the rising. And um, Count mark which appeals to me very much for a courage and everything else
3: That was 100 by Donald Deneen and Jimmy Eady. Narration was by Donald Deneen. Original music and sound design were by Jimmy Eady. Pat Herbert told the story of the Morse broadcast of 1916, and sound supervision was by Damien Chanel. 100 by Donald Deneen and Jimmy Eady was produced by Kevin Brew. Special thanks go to the RTE Radio Archives team of Rob Canning, Sheila Dempsey, Ian Lee, James Moynes, Jack Smith, Ian Murray and Brian Rice. Thanks also to Pat Herbert, Joe Gilfoyle, Michael Walsh and Richard Doyle of the Hurdy Gurdy Museum of Vintage Radio in Hoth. To listen back to 100, go to rte.ie forward drama on one
2: rta.ie forward slash drama on one.